the Centre Steer Podcast, a podcast by, for, and about Land Rover owners. Welcome to the Centre Steer Podcast number 130 for January of 2024. Centre Steer is a monthly podcast for Land Rover enthusiasts, hobbyists, and owners around the world. This podcast is the second of a two-parter with Nick Dimbleby. Nick is the famed photographer of Land Rovers and has a unique connection with Land Rover. Last time we talked about his activities in the 20th century. This time we're going to talk about Nick's activities in the 21st century, overland journeys, product launches, and concept models. I'm John Costage, and joining me are my fellow owners and enthusiasts, Harold Morgan and Dixon. Welcome to 2024, gentlemen. Thank, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Where's my flying Land Rover? The, only if it's a 130. This is episode 130, so it should be a flying 130. Mm, yeah. Yeah, this is episode 130. It's very much like episode 127, but with a marketing upgrade and push-button door handles. <laughs> Thanks to our Patreon and Buy Me T subscribers for their support. Patreon supporters receive bonus content, including 10 questions, a question and answer lightning round, and we'll post Nick Dimblebees here shortly. Congratulations to Ryan Nichols. He was the winner of our Knightsbridge Overland Instagram giveaway. He needed new front seats for Jolene, his Discovery 2, and, and he was able to outfit new front seat covers thanks to Knightsbridge Overland. Thanks, Knightsbridge Overland, for your support of the podcast. And Dixon, you'll be pleased to hear Ryan lives in British Columbia. Oh, excellent. The left coast. Yes, and the elusive British Columbian Canadian Rover Club. There's a club up there no one knows about. It's kind of like Sasquatch. You don't get to see it or anything. Roverlanders in BC. It's another, it's an Al Rock Charter Club that was created back in around, what, 1985 or six. And they have they been around the whole time? At a low level, yes, they have. Speaking of clubs in North America, it's time for the North American events calendar. Dixon, what's going on? Oh, I can give you, let's see, we'll start with three that I have the dates on. Obviously, the first one is going to be the winter romp up in Maine. Bruce Fowler organizes and such. That's on February 16th to 19th, just outside of Waterville, Maine. It's a big one. And I think there's 149 vehicles registered as of this morning with that event. And you do have to register for that event. It seems to get interested. bigger every year, does it not? It seems to, yes. If you're looking for information, winterromp.me is the website. The next one. On February 24th, the next weekend, is a coffee and rovers meetup in, looks like, Pisgah National Forest Adventure being put on by the Carolina Trail Rovers. They're describing this as gather with us at Land Rover Asheville for a unique coffee and rovers meetup. Then we'll enjoy some great coffee conversation. Meetup will also serve as a starting point for a thrilling day exploring the Pisgah National Forest and the Hurricane Creek 4x4 Trail. After that, there's the Virginia Club Rove at Wintergreen, April 18th to 21st. That one's been going on for a number of years. Information for that is on the Rove website, rove.org. I've got two that haven't been given a date yet. Rovers Club is having their spring Robesonia trials in Eastern Pennsylvania. That's been going on a long time. Information on that can be found either in the Facebook group for Rovers or their website. And then the Ottawa Valley Maple Syrup Rally up in Shawville, Quebec. No date for that. And again, for that one, information will be on the Facebook group 
or the website. And then finally, which is coming out of Anarch, Anarch is going to be partnering with three of its member clubs for three Anarch affiliated events in 2024. This is for longer term planning because they're all over the continent. The first is with the Pacific Coast Rover Club, May 24th to 27th in Redmond, Oregon. The second is the Minnesota Land Rover Club event, August 1st to 4th in Gilbert, Minnesota. And the third, for those down in the Southeast, the Gulf Coast Land Rover Club is having an event on October 24th to 27th. But it will be in Alabama, but I don't have the exact location at this point in time. I believe the um, date on that one and the location is not firmly set. Okay. Yeah, I think they're targeting October 24th through the 27th, and the location is still is being evaluated. And the one thing to note, as with last year's Jubilee, those wishing to attend these events must be a member of a Anarch member club. And there's 22 of them out there, so see who your local club is. And some of them are free to join, others not. One thing I'd note is that a featured part of each of these events will be the Anarch Cup Challenge. Rovers North is going to be sponsoring the RTVs portion of that cup in each event. At the end of it, a club will win. But you, the clubs will all have to participate in all three events, though you, same people don't need to go and attend all three events. They can be different members of the teams. And that's about it. That's a fair amount of stuff for this month on what's going on in terms of events. That is a good bit as 2024 eventually warms up here in the Northern Hemisphere, in North America. People want to get out in their trucks. And it's good to see Carolina Trail Rovers there as we had Nate Kitts on in December. They're getting up and running and having events. That's great. They're developing quite a, a list of events to go to. It looks like it's quite a happening club down in that area. And the Anarch events, the Anarch 2024 events, if you go to anarch.club, there is a special page for all of those events that you can get to and get the dates and the locations when that information is all official. We'll get that posted up there. I think we're targeting like an official announcement in later in February. Uh, so you're getting some advanced knowledge of those events that are coming up for the Anarch 2024 activities. And now for the news. First up, JLR. Enjoy sales boost for third quarter as supply improves. JLR saw sales volumes for its third quarter rise substantially. New figures show the Tata Motors subsidiary for the first three-month period through December 31st reached 101,043 units, which was up 27% year-on-year. JLR said it was at its highest wholesale figure in 11 quarters with volumes for the Range Rover Sport. Up 49% at 16,921, while its Range Rover stablemate was up 12%, and a Defender was up 14%. Wholesale volumes for the financial year to date were 291,113, which was a 28% increase versus the previous year. Retail volumes were also higher in all regions year on year. In the UK, they were up 55%. Overseas was up 49%, China was up 28%, Europe was up 27%, and bringing up the rear, North America was up 6%. By the end of the third quarter, customer orders stood at 148,000, which is down from 168,000 at the end of the second quarter, reflecting an increase in order fulfillment and better waiting volumes. Demand for the Range Rover Sport and Defender 
represents 76% of the order book. Things are doing well. Except for the Discovery, apparently. We'll talk more about the Discovery later. A little foreshadowing. Next up, JLR design boss Massimo Fraschella resigns. He is the architect of Defender, Discovery, and Range Rover models, leaves the company for new pastures. Massimo Fraschella has resigned from his post as design boss of JLR. Working under creative chief Jerry McGovern, Fraschella oversaw the fruition of some of JLR's most recognizable model lines, including the Defender and the Discovery. He was also instrumental in the development of the new Range Rover and the Range Rover Sport, as well as their SV variants. JLR said in a statement supplied to Autocar, quote, his creative contribution to the business has been significant and is an excellent demonstration of how creativity can successfully transform and build brands, unquote. McGovern added, Massimo Fraschella, JLR design director, has decided to leave JLR to pursue new opportunities. We would like to thank Massimo for his significant creative contribution to JLR and wish him every success in the future, unquote. Fraschella left Kia to join JLR in 2011, taking the role of Land Rover Exterior Design Chief. He was promoted to Design Director in November 2020 and rose to JLR Design Director in May of 2021. It is not yet clear what the future holds for him, but he leaves JLR having successfully steered into the 2020s with distinct fashionable identities for each of its sub-brands, critical to the revamp of its sales marketing for each under the new house of brands. Well, I was a little curious when he left Kia to join JLR, and it certainly seems like he left Kia well before the horrible new logo that nobody realizes. KN, it looks like KN logo. to me. Yeah, exactly. What's a uh, KN? I've never heard of the brand KN. Great way to rebrand your company and leave behind all bad press. Except that the, Brad Pe the bad press about the theft thing has continued with you. Oh, yes. Are no we sure he didn't muck up the logo? Because he was around for the removal of logos from all the JLR products. Huh? Excellent. Possibly. Yeah. It can take some time hey, to get that logo refresh going. Maybe you know. he actually felt strongly about not switching to a house of brands. We may never know. All I know is that's an interesting lateral move. Kia to JLR. And next up, Polestar, v Lotus, Volvo, JLR, form alliance on EV charging. This is from the Automotive News. I'm only reading you the headline because I'm not paying for to get a full story. The companies of which the majority are owned by Geely in China also work together to set battery charging standards for luxury automotive brands. Polestar said they are coming together again to establish that alliance on EV charging. Geely has a little interest in, has an interest, not a little one, but a little an interest in JLR in China. So it makes sense that all these companies would get together and unify their form factor. Yes. And JLR is small oh. in this space, so they're a niche market manufacturer, so they definitely need to join in with some other manufacturers. Out of curiosity, yeah. I wonder why they wouldn't get together with Ford, GM, or Tesla. No, I mean, just dominate the field. Or BMW, because you're buying engines from BMW. Polestar, Lotus, um, Volvo, and Jaguar, not the biggest selling things out there. They're not going to create I, their own network. I wonder if it might have something to do with where they think they're going to be sourcing all their electric hardware from. Yeah, BMW, they buy engines from them, but they're not necessarily buying all their electric hardware from BMW. So if they foresee in the future getting their electric hardware out of China, perhaps from the same supplier, then it would make sense. Yeah, but I want to make sure that when I drive my Disco 5 EV up to a charging station that I can charge it and not have to go find one that's good for 
these four brands. It's possible they also asked other major manufacturers and were rebuffed. That's again, we may never know. <laughs> or laughed at. Yes. Yeah. Hey, given and you're not subscribing are. to the website, so it's Yeah, exactly. There. Yeah. It's not <laughs> sorry. Sorry, guys. It's not worth the I don't know what it costs, but for how often they have the paid stories and no thanks. And they are all luxury brands. I think that they're still some other sort of higher market brands, maybe not the Land Rover in terms of that particular collection, but there's a lot of partnerships available for charging networks in luxury vehicles because charging still very much is a situation where you need to leave the vehicle for a while. So you can make it an attraction that you're going to go do something else. And next up, DVLA Records note a decline in Range Rover thefts. It is unusual for car makers to issue press releases on Sundays, but Land Rover was sufficiently moved by a recent freedom of information request relating to stolen car figures that made it a point of sharing the DVLA data itself. Its reasoning was simple enough, despite appearing three times in the UK's top 10 most stolen cars of 2023, the numbers suggested that across its four Range Rover branded models, the official reckoning recorded a 20% decline in thefts. Even more conveniently for Land Rover, the largest falls were recorded by the big ticket cars. Thefts of the Range Rover Sport and the flagship Range Rover dropped by 28.6 and 27.6% in the last 12 months. The latter didn't even make it in the top 10. And while 1,631 examples of the Sport were still taken, making it the fifth most stolen model in the UK, narrowly ahead of the Evoque in sixth, Land Rover's clearly pleased that the 10 million pound investment it pledged last year to updating the security features of more than 75,000 older client vehicles has seemingly paid off. Alternatively, <laughs> or... <laughs> they may be running out of vehicles to have stolen, but hopefully it's not that. So let's let's be clear here. They pledged 10 million investments. They've I'm not sure what exactly they've done. They created a special insurance plan for, for some of the Range Rover owners to so they could insure their vehicle. I don't know that I know that doesn't affect your theft rate, but Let, let's hope it's something more than just issuing each owner a club. <laughs> and anything they've done now doesn't affect all the vehicles out there in the wild, which are still game to get nicked. They were hoping to go back and help some of those cars. But again, that's the pledged. They pledged to do something. We'll follow this and see what happens. Next up is JLR needs to fix almost 60,000 Range Rovers due to leaky rear camera. JLR is recalling 60,000 vehicles across the U.S. due to an issue with its reversing camera. The recall notice issued through NHTSA reveals that the reversing camera on certain Range Rover and Range Rover Sport models will display a port image or no image at all due to the possibility of water leaking into the camera housing and bezel. A total of 58,729 vehicles are involved in the recall. These consist of 36,000 Range Rovers built from 2018 to 2022. There's specific dates. If that impacts you, you can check that out, as well as 22,000 plus Range Rover Sport models from 18 to 22. And again, there's some specific model build dates. A subsequent investigations and testing determine the camera may not be correctly sealed, allowing water to enter. Imagine that, a Range Rover being recalled for something that leaks. It just goes to show you the more bells and whistles you have, the more things that can leak and cause trouble. Yeah, but now they can rebrand their blinker fluid as camera fluid. What they really need to do is sell replacement mirror fluid 
Remember the self-dimming mirrors that would leak and leave a black puddle on the center console and then they wouldn't work anymore? Speaking of Range Rover, Bloomberg has an opinion piece talking about the change of Range Rover and they they entitled it $250,000 Range Rover's Trigger a Quiet Revolution. Uh, These lean years appear to be over. Cost cuts and price hikes are helping JLR generate cash. Revamp models such as the Defender have been smash hits, while component shortages that curtail production and in some cases led to waiting times of more than a year have eased, although not necessarily for those trying to repair their older vehicles. But this goes on to say, but I don't blame uh, Tata shareholders for getting excited. Their stock has almost doubled over the past year, surprising every other member of the Bloomberg World Auto Manufacturer Index. JLR contributes around two-thirds of Tata Motors' revenue, but doesn't have a separate listing. Uh, Like several of its high-end rivals, JLR has learned that building fewer cars and selling them at higher prices is a much better approach than pursuing growth at all costs. New management ditched a goal of achieving 1 million in annual vehicle sales. Retail volume, which exceeded 600,000 in 2018, is now around 400,000 yearly. To put that in context, Mercedes-Benz annual sales are around five times higher. But thanks to its efficiency drive, the company says it now requires only 300,000 sales to break even. And by focusing on its most profitable models, Range Rover, the Range Rover Sport and Defender, that comprises around three quarters of its order book, has been able to raise average sale prices by around half since 2019 to more than 70,000 pounds. Top of the range models fetch considerably more. The SV, Range Rover SV, sells for around 200,000 pounds on average, and some customers pay far more for limited editions or for bespoke services to ensure that the vehicle color or interior stitching matches their jet or yachts. Yeah, I think it's that those special editions that are really right raising the bottom line. Oh, yes. Uh, further, this goes on to say, but the better sales mix and pricing have transformed JLR's finances. It expects to generate £2 billion of free cash flow in the physical year ending in March. By the following year, it aims to have zero net debt, a far cry from 2022 when net indebtedness exceeded £4 billion. Well, it's a lot easier to pay off your debts when you have money coming in. And it's a lot easier to sell quarter million dollar Range Rovers when you're pairing them with the likes of super yachts and jets, which honestly, they do pair very well. So why not? (laughs) Oh, and if you can afford a yacht, it's just the Range Rover is just a small accessory. Well, again, this reinforces their move upscale to the luxury brand and... It's paying off. They're, they have cash. They're a washing cash. There's still an order book. Defender is also selling well. Faster than they can build them, actually. Now we're going to move to the discovery portion of the program. Uh, and and now the discovery portion of the program. A couple things came together, a little uh, coincidence, maybe not. I don't know. But we received an email from a listener that we will we'll talk about here about us basically bashing discoveries. And there were two articles I found this past month about the discovery and what are the differences between a discovery and a defender. So read those and then we'll, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about the email we received and try to pull it all together about what's happening with discovery. The first one is from Slash Gear and they were talking about the defender versus discovery, the biggest differences. You can read the whole thing if you want to know more. I'm just going to read a little portion here that talks about basically how they were developed. Uh, they are built on the same D7 platform as many other JLR vehicles, including the Discovery. Well, that the Defender, they were talking about the Defender. 
This means the latest generation of the Defender and Discovery share the same underpinnings, engines, and technologies. And for the first time in the two nameplates history, these two vehicles from the same manufacturer might end up being cross-shopped. Don't think they are the same vehicle with a different skin because there are still many differences between the Defender and Discovery. The designs are nothing alike with the Defender adopting and reinterpreting many classic design cues from previous generations. At the same time, the Discovery treads new ground for Land Rover design with its bold asymmetrical approach. You can get the Defender in three body styles, which broadens its appeal significantly, while you can only get Discovery as a big three-row family SUV. And this goes on to make further comparisons between the two about body style, off-road ability. You can read that if, uh, if that interests you, but that gives you the base level here. They are on the same platform, going in different directions, I suppose. And then this article from Cinch, which is out of the UK, which is entitled Land Rover Defender versus Land Rover Discovery, which is better. So I'll pull out a couple highlights. You'll notice a lot of similarities between both models, such as hard-wearing but premium-feeling switchgear. Their seats are also coated in soft and sumptuous leather. However, the Discovery is clearly set up to feel ultra-luxurious and isn't far off meeting the extremely high standards set by the very expensive Range Rover. And further, it says, put simply, the Land Rover Discovery is better for carrying luggage and the Land Rover Defender is good for carrying people. But the reality is that they both have large boots, trunks for us Americans, and lots of interior space, so you won't be disappointed either way. And the end here, about between the two, which did you buy? It's easy to think that the Defender should be more suitable for those who genuinely need to venture off the beaten track. But like every other Land Rover model, it also has earned itself a reputation as being a very luxurious SUV. In reality, few drivers will ever leave the tarmac, and both are great picks. The Discovery is good for a carrying seven, but if you need even more space, consider a Defender. Given that they're both the same thing under the skin, they're, you, know, you really can't say which one's better because they're the same. Only one of them can you get with factory steel rims. You got that going for you. Previously on the show, we have compared the new Defender as what we would have expected the next step of the Discovery to be, the LRF5. But some of these articles make a good point that, you know, the Discovery never had like a short wheelbase version for the most part, but they certainly never had a 90, a 110, a 130. That's kind of nice options in the new Defender, which are just not there in the Disco line. Yeah, it's actually surprising that the Discovery never had a long wheelbase version because it's based on the Range Rover Classic, which did. They had 108, but the Discovery, at least through the first four versions of it only came in hundred inch. Hey, they should go back to two door models. Well, yeah, <laughs> doesn't change the wheelbase any, but yeah, I right. like a two door disco. That'd be pretty cool. As long as it had a manual transmission and a diesel. So no one's going to buy it except me. Well, I think more would buy it if it had a diesel. Well, they did True. have a disco here in a diesel for one year. It didn't go. More than that, I think in Canada, but, uh, few and far between. Yeah. I never advertised well. The Canadians well. are more sensible in their vehicle purchases. Well, that also happened right as the Volkswagen scandal came about too. So they, maybe they were going to make a push for it. That scandal, I know that seemed to happen roughly at the same time. So that kind of put the brakes on that one. I think this, these two articles illustrate that you have two similar vehicles. They're on the same frame. They have similar capabilities. One is doing better than the other. 
I think some of this is, I think the defender did way better than they ever anticipated. They hit, yeah. the, they hit the mark very well that it eclipsed what they may or may not have wanted to do with a discovery. And they're able to have, they didn't keep the defender either at a specific price point, a lower price point. And you can go from a luxurious defender down to your bare bones defender as it's, it is selling well. And they've extended it now to the 130 and you can get seven seats. And since it's selling so well, uh, I think that's eclipsed what maybe they wanted Discovery to be. Well, it just adds to the existential crisis of the disco. It's like, what does it do to stay relevant? The disco used to be the poor man's Range Rover, especially when you were comparing with the, you know, what a Defender looked like, you know, which is basically an evolved series three on coils. And when, especially when it came into North America, it was quite something. It's a semi-luxury vehicle that did everything that a Range Rover did, but, you know, cheaper, different design, more practical in some manners, and it stayed that way all the way through the LR4. But so, now Range Rover has their own entry-level models now. So that they, situation is the same. Yeah, they took the wind right out of the sails. So Discovery really has to go down a completely different path from Defender and the Range Rover families. Well, Assuming well, Defender's probably going to have families too, the rate they're well, doing it, with the it, others. In a way, it already does, even that it comes in three, three different lengths. And the other part of it is the Defender suddenly is no longer a glorified tractor. A larger <laughs> portion of people are willing to drive it. Yes, you can. your foot doesn't take, get wet and you can have a conversation. Take sport out of it for some of us. Yeah, this is a good time to bring in that email that we got from Austin about Discovery. Uh, I will let you know ahead of time, he is a two-vehicle household in a family of five. They have a 98 Discovery 1 and a 79 Volvo C303 from Austin. You guys do a lot of trash talking in regards to all things disco. I put it down to you being from the Rust Belt and its salt-ridden chassis. But look at England, Canada, and the West Coast, where preserved discos are the only thing reliably flying the banner of the Land Rover as a going concern. For the United States, the Discovery was the vision of Land Rover. It has the same V8 and coil foundation as a Defender, and I would argue more reliable and at least the Disco 1. Yes, they became a low-market used car when people began to sell their 20-year-old luxury car. They were getting long in the tooth. This gave them a bad rap. Like the Defender, time takes its toll on any rover. The D2 flew too close to the sun with thin cylinder walls and subsequent head gasket issues, but the mark continued with the LR3, which has stood the test of time as being a good rig. I drive a 98D1 as a family daily driver with 230,000 miles. I did the head gasket, flush the radiator, Redid the ground wire starter, and the thing has been super dependable daily driver. Leave it for a month and it will start right up. Series and also Defenders were once seen as cheap and disposable. The Discovery is moving out of this category and is joining the rank of true rovers. He puts that in quote. It is as capable as a Defender and a dis Disco, as well as the classic are works of auto engineering art whose body lines have not been duplicated. So please, a little respect, not the poor man's Land Rover. How about a rover for the people? A liaison to a stiff-lipped mark, attainable but dependable unsung hero that fought like hell in Camel Trophies and who is bringing people into the Land Rover fold every day in a positive way, going head-to-head -head with Yodas and doing fine. Thank you, Austin. We don't bash discos here. None of us do. I think do. we bash the Disco 5. I think we... Well, we, and not we, even that it's... We're concerned about the staying power and the relevance of the Disco family, but yeah, and the Disco 5, we, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But yeah, the first four Discos, yeah, I, 
don't feel bad about those. I don't trash talk those. I've had several. I've daily driven discos and, yeah. and been happy with that. I think we yeah. trash talk the what Land Rover is doing, where it's going with it. It's lost its, it's, lost its way. And, we, and as we just talked a few minutes ago, the Defender has eclipsed it, and I think they don't know what to do. Yeah, but that's not the fault of the disco. And hopefully it's not our fault either. <laughs> no, we don't have that We're kind of power. We, have no, we do not have that. that kind of power. We have no power. We have no power. Yeah, and I think there certainly have been times where we've bemoaned some of the problems of the disco too that Austin pretty well nailed there. Oh, uh, yeah, they're a pain in the ass to work on. Uh, yeah. And they uh, have certain and, limitations thanks to uh, BMW's improvements they made us take. In that respect, we don't blame Land Rover for that, right? We blame BMW. But, I mean, I've had several D1s. I love me a good D1. They're they're cheap. And, yeah, they do rust a lot, but that allows me to buy them cheap for parts. And I can drive them for a little bit longer and, and keep them going. And then when they're done, they're parts for everything else because parts is parts. Mm -hmm. The other part of the problem, especially here in North America, was the Discovery was what the Defender should have been here in North America. And it couldn't be because they, for we all know the reasons they couldn't bring Defender in. They did, you know, then they had to take it away. Right. And then, so that was the Defender for North America. And then when they- It was the new series truck. It was, the, and it became, right, yep. exactly. It was a new series truck. And as you have mentioned, Morgan, it was not the tractor. It was not the, it was definitely not a workhorse tractor. It was something that was comfortable and you could, drive it all across the country on the interstates. Although, ironically, I prefer it for doing yard work and, and yes, field work and but pulling that, stuff. And that's right. the other side of the coin is it's able to do work and is able to be right. a work vehicle. The short the, wheelbase makes it very maneuverable. And plus, the most the best thing about a D1, especially a rusty old D1, is I, its most important feature is that I really don't care what happens to it. <laughs> Because, you know, I got tens of thousands of dollars invested in my Defender. I really don't want to pull stumps with it and mess it up. Right. So I use a Disco. Yes. And then, then when Land Rover does bring the new Defender here to North America, there was so much pent-up demand. And they, I think they just assumed that the Discovery would continue and do well in its niche. But, I, again, I go back to, I think Defender did way better than ever anticipated. Well, I think a lot of people that were, were buying Discos because there was no Defender to be had. So when the Defender shows up, they just shifted over to where they really wanted to be in the first place. At least here in North America, the Range Rover, it always has been the more luxurious of the two between the Disco and the Rangey. But there has always been a much bigger cultural difference there in terms of its placement in society and pop culture and what have you uh, here in North America. And maybe that's partly due to the sort of more gradual evolution of it in the UK than here in the US where it had to be a little more upmarket. And the other part is with the D2 uh, here in the US, we never got a diesel. So the rest of the world got quite a bit more reliable of a vehicle in that generation to the point that they didn't even want to call it the disco in the US. They wanted to call it the LR3 and the LR4. Well, it's at this point that I need to provide some news to my fellow podcast folks and also to the listening audience. Are I, you giving us all discoveries? No. Oh, okay. That'd be interesting news. That would be interesting news. No, no, no. Well, I guess in a way, not all of you, just one person, me, 
I've picked up an 06 LR3 with 102,000 miles. Oh, nice. Nice. That's actually pretty low mileage for something that of that age. Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, it was funny because he sent this email at the same time I was picking it up <laughs> earlier this month. It, and a lot of that came from my wanting something more comfortable to drive on the highways of North America. And and, and there was that... Tr- uh, translation, something you can drive in the rain without your foot getting wet. One of the things, also hold a conversation with your girlfriend while going down the road too. That would be, that's helpful. Conversation instead of a, a yelling match. I think it's, it's, it was funny to receive Austin's email uh, and then and all the other disco conversation. because Talking about how we bag on discos and then you just went and bought another. I went, I went and bought one. <laughs> and yeah, but the LR3 is supposed to be like a really good sound and for discoveries and Land Rover is supposed to be very reliable. As long as you stay up on your maintenance, the LR3s yes. and LR4s are really decent trucks. Yes. And then we had that uh, video a couple months ago where there was that comparison between the three and the four. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I was thinking about a four, just a little newer and closer to modern. But then seeing that video about the three, it went down the three route. Still really don't even understand the difference between the two of them. I still have trouble with that. Yeah. And it's interesting because you see a lot of folks will mod out the three to look like a four. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's basically a trim and, and a few mechanical details, but the trucks themselves are hard to distinguish. It's yes. even harder than telling a, a D1 from a D2. Yes, I agree. Right. I agree. I agree. Which, yep. to be honest, took me a couple of years yep. when I was <laughs> early in this game. One thing that I think is interesting is just as we're getting into sort of the LR3s and 4s here becoming more affordable and quite reliable vehicles is we should be getting diesel d2 imports at some point very soon here if not already with the 25 year assuming that there's any 25 year old discos that are not rusted out to where nobody wants to bring them in except that i think at this point putting a galvi chassis under one is probably more worthwhile than it's true (laughs) once the value has been going up on them so at some point that might start to make economic sense it just hasn't prior to this point been worth putting a chassis under a disco because they just don't have the resale. But do you think that all of the importation of Defenders might suck the air from the the diesel disco? I don't know. It's hard to say. I guess we'll find out what in 2025, 2026. It just, it really depends on what people are willing to take on project wise. For interesting discos that are different from what we can get here, I think that's really the key. No one's going to import a disco that's the same as what they sold here because they're still here. Not the same as the Defender world where there are only 500 sold here. So you really have to snatch up all the ones you can get. No, it would be fun to have a right-hand drive disco too. Oh yeah, especially with a TD5 in it. Well, thanks Austin for your timely message (laughs) around this subject. And I do appreciate you emailing us and letting us know your thoughts about the disco. If we tried to bash the disco, it was only because we like it and we wanted to see it continue. Although I know I've said maybe it's time for it to go away, but that's mainly to shake up the thinking on Land Rover. Come on, give it some love. And again, it's not about the vehicles themselves. That's about the relevance of the model family. And the only real bashing we do on the early ones was just how quickly they rust out. And yes, that is a factor in this part of the world, not so much yeah. out West where, where anything lasts forever out there, but so.
kudos to you for living in a place where things don't rust. That's great for you. But for the rest <laughs> of us, the discos seem to rust out quicker than they should. And that is a problem for us. Yep. All yep. in the same place. Although, depending on, on your framework, for me, that's an opportunity to get them cheap and, and part them out. Although we have done a fair amount of bashing them on the trails. So that's well, yeah, different kind fair. of bashing. Well, at, that's what they're made for. Look at you yeah. spinning that. Well done, sir. Nice spin. Nice spin. Well, why don't we move on to rest of the news? This Defender convertible fills a gap in Land Rover's lineup. This is not a concept vehicle, uh, and this is not done by Land Rover, but you can now get a def new Defender 90 as a convertible. Derived from the Defender 90, the Valence convertible features a folding fabric top that contrasts with the Sunbeam yellow body. This marks the company's second conversion, and that is Dutch coach builder Heritage Customs. Following a different build introduced nearly a year ago with the glorious white steel wheels, the latest iteration is a flashier showcasing bigger two-tone alloys, including a spare attached to the fifth door. Heritage Customs went beyond simply removing the fixed hardtop to make way for an electrically folding roof. They also added a full roll cage for extra strength and safety. Heritage Customs doesn't keep Defender Valence convertibles in stock. These made-to-order vehicles will take at least three months to, to complete, and the cost from 82,500 euros, nearly $90,000 US, plus the donor car and any applicable taxes. Yeah, don't forget the taxes. Tax. It's good looking. Yes. I think they that it's a and, it's, and perhaps some destination fees. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you have to get it shipped over. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I do back. love the the color scheme on the, the one yeah. they're showing here. Especially yeah. the black stripe through the taillights. It helps to get rid of some of the, I don't know, it doesn't make them go away, but it takes, uh, draws the eye away from that extra set of mini-me's that I find so annoying. Yeah, the squirgles, yeah. as I recall those being called, those ones on the outside. Some of the rear and top shots harken back to the NAS 90s with the coloring and the soft tops. Yeah, yeah the early soft top, yeah. I wonder if the top comes in two versions, rain gutter and non. <laughs> Next up is there are two Land Rovers up for sale. First, Rowan Atkinson. Only two. Only two. Only two. There's only two. Rowan Atkinson's limited edition Land Rover heads to auction with an 80,000 pound guide price. Uh, one of the last classic defenders ever made, a 110 Heritage Edition that is currently owned by Rowan Atkinson, will go under the hammer next month. That'll be in February. It is one of just 400 ever produced at the end of the iconic car's life cycle is estimated to go for up to 80,000 pounds. So this is a, uh, that I said, that Heritage Edition, and uh, he's the second owner. Does that mean that this Heritage Green color, we can now call it Mr. Bean Green? Oh, that's good. I like that. That's good. <laughs> that's good. Bean Green. Call it the Bean Green. I like it. I like it. They're also selling a uh, No Time to Die Bond 2122 Bond Edition Defender that's, uh, that is also, I think, owned by Atkinson. And then the next one I want to talk about is Yahoo News. A bonkers off-road ready, ready Land Rover Defender from the 90s is up for grabs. This is a Camel Trophy Defender 110, and it's from the Camel Trophy. And this Defender is believed to have been the camera car for the 1998 event, which saw competitors trek across Argentina and Chile, according to an auction note from Doug DeMauro. As such, it is one of the last real Land Rover Camel Trophy 4x4s. It comes equipped with several choice off-road goodies, a brown church front bumper, winch, Mantec snorkel intake system, roll cage, roof rack. Open its doors and you'll find a black interior with steering wheel and gauges on the right-hand side, which still has its original TerraTrip 303 Rally computer. 
Powering the SUV is a 2.5-liter turbo diesel inline-four. It produced 111 horsepower, 195 pound-feet of torque. Five-speed manual gearbox, two-speed transfer case, 44,000 miles. <laughs> of course, I like how they note here, it's far from being in mint condition. <laughs> you don't say. I don't think it was ever in mint condition. <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> Perhaps course not, not even while being assembled. <laughs> That's exactly right. Hand-built. In the door and you find a black interior, as opposed to all the other Defenders where you open the door and find a black interior. interior. Yes. Apparently it did sell. cars. It was on Cars and Bids. And it says bid to $70,000 sold after. Harold, what does that mean? I think that means that it probably didn't meet reserve. And so after the closing of the auction, the high bidder would have negotiated with the seller for some sort of number, which was more than he had bid, but enough to satisfy the seller. And this does have a U.S. title. So this was sold here in the U.S. and hopefully is remaining in the U.S. Which means it's already here. Yes. So this is one that should have shown up at the Jubilee. And we done the work, Dixon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, it's all these things that we now see. We're like, oh, we should have done that for the Jubilee. Maybe for the 80th. These are things well, we should I, Really? Because it's not like you guys had anything else to do to plan that event. That's true. And speaking of something that we should have shown at the 75th Jubilee, but I only found this. This was posted on February 6th of 2023, but I only found out about it in the last month here. It's called The Extraordinary Terrestrial. It's a TV program made by Central Television in February of 1983 to celebrate the launch of the 110, and it was entitled The Extraordinary Terrestrial. It was screened by Central Television in March of 1983. A large number of Land Rover enthusiasts from the All-Wheel Drive Club and many of the Land Rover clubs turned up to participate. It's 24 minutes and 42 seconds of glorious Land Rover porn. It is wonderful. You should go and watch it. It's wonderful that you get introduced to the original, I'm assuming now, is the original Mr. Land Rover who you thought was Roger Craythorn, but it's not. Tom Barton. Tom Barton. So the original Mr. Land Rover, Tom Barton, who was the creative director of Land Rover Limited and uh, wearing his hat and... (laughs) It's just wonderful. Like a trench coat, like you, some kind of like spy or something. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> but it, uh, this is the introduction of the 110. Uh, they had a bunch of clubs come together. And I swear I heard in this thing that they got, I think, more trucks together than we did at the Jubilee. And I was trying to find that reference again. And I forgot to note it the first time I went through, but I couldn't find it. But I swear I heard that. The aerial photograph was pretty impressive, I gotta say. And yes, uh, yeah. they, have air, they took an uh, aerial photograph. They clearly got a helicopter. Again, something we failed to do at the Jubilee. We didn't get a helicopter, Dixon. <laughs> what did you guys do? Nothing, nothing. We sat around. We sat. I drank tea. I drank tea most of the time. We got the 80 edges and series ones and the new Defenders all lined up for pictures. It was just all the people yeah. with the other vehicles that got forgotten. You see, n- nobody bothered to invite any Freelanders. No, no, that's not true, Harold. No, they were no. invited. They were invited. They were invited, sadly. None showed. None showed. Up. None showed. One registered did not show. That would have made for a great group photo. Yeah, we did fail on the group photo. That was a major fail. Hopefully the paragliders will turn in their footage. Although I think we got more footage of the paragliders than they probably got of us. That's true. All right, so if you're keeping track, these are things we can do for the 80th because that seems to be the consensus is we're going to have a... 80th celebration in 2028. 
So we need to have a group photo that should be number one on the list. Agreed. I know what the mark of the event should be, the 80 inches. Then six years later, you can have one for the 86s and then the 88s. Start your countdown now. So go out to our website. We'll have a link to the Extraordinary Terrestrial. It is, it's wonderful. You just get, you should just, if you like Land Rovers, especially of the 80s vintage, you want to go check this out. It's some great period porn. Yes, it is. If you have a club or you want to have a club, you want to start a club, you can get this off of YouTube, play it. It's 24 minutes, 42 seconds. It's to be a great club activity. Screen this at your club event, have a couple beers, watch it. And it would be a good thing. That's what we should have done. We'll do this at one of our F Plurk events. And that's the news for January 2024. Welcome back to the podcast, Nick Dimbleby. This is part two. Welcome back, Nick. You've poured a fresh bit of whiskey, I believe. Absolutely. Cheers. It's actually a very nice whiskey, actually. It's the, I don't know if you can see that, the Pilcoman uh, Land Rover from, from Isla in Scotland that was done. Very special bottle. I can't remember how many there were, but it was a very small number. And I put my hand in my pocket and bought one, which I'm very glad I did. The only problem is with a limited number, they disappear. There they go. They, they, the one that's gone. It's gone. It? Yeah, is there a hole in the bottom yeah. or something? Yeah, it must be. It's, one of those, it's a Land Rover. It leaks. It leaks. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It looks like you're ready for another. <laughs> Cheers. We had such a nice conversation the last time that we decided to keep talking and roll on. But before we continue on with your career in this century, you're, you said you're in your office and I do not see any Land Rover content on the walls, sir. You're right. Actually. I'm, I'm you calling you out. Oh. I'm calling you out. He does it every day, all day. He needs a refuge, does he not? <laughs> yeah, I must admit, I do need to. So what's annoying is you probably see I've got I, I, my actual office. I've got a downstairs bit, which is all my equipment and all my archive and lots of uh, all that stuff. So my actual office bit where my computer is is up in the sort of the eaves of the of the building which makes it really difficult to hang pictures because of course you've got the you've got the roof which is makes up the majority of the walls so yeah in the background actually i've got some um aston martin pictures so i work with aston martin from about 2018 to 2014 so yes the aston martin pictures that's actually the last vanquish being produced which i printed up but i do have some land Rover pictures downstairs all right right. i feel better now (laughs) (laughs) that's good that's good and to be fair he does have a large stack of his land rover books next to him as well do that's right yeah so there's plenty of pictures in there there you go he's got so many pictures of land rovers in his office he has to keep them pressed between pages of other pictures (laughs) (laughs) that's for certain so if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast and the first time you've heard of Nick Dimble, we need to go back a couple episodes. When we talked to Nick originally, he talks about getting into uh, photography and getting into Land Rovers. And now we want to pick up where you, what, what's happened in basically in, in this century. And the last week we chatted, we ended with the Camel Trophy and the book you created. What happens after you, you're hooked on Land Rovers, you're connected into the Land Rover world now and Camel Trophy and adventuring. What happens next then for Nick Dimbleby? Okay, so I guess it's we're going back to I me. Mean, it's even 23 years, isn't it? I mean, here we are in 2023. And let me guess, the... you snapped your fingers and you're here now, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. I know. It did seem to go very quickly, though. I don't know. But anyway, but uh, yeah, 2000. Yeah, 2000 was the last Camel Trophy, which wasn't in Land Rovers, if you recall. It was in boats, so very different event. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to be working with Land Rover. So Bill Baker, who I mentioned in the last episode, was still working in the UK. And so I started to do 
In fact, it was the beginning of digital photography. So digital photography was starting around about 2000, 2001. And it was changing the way that people did events and also how product launches, car launches were being run. Range Rover L322 launch, which was in 2002, which was held up in Scotland. So I was the official photographer for that event. It was my first Land Rover launch event, which I was asked to do. And part of the reason for that was because digital photography was starting to become really big in the sense that journalists were having photography taken on the event and then were going home with a CD, a CD-ROM, remember those? Oh, yes. Of, of images. So my job was basically to be on the event and photograph the off-road drives, the any shots that journalists wanted with the car, as well as produce a set of, of images, what you call a set of stock images. So these are images of the car on location that would be used for the magazine reports. And yeah, so that was... And probably for Land Rover's website too, I assume. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, yeah, brochures. The, the fledgling website, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was where I really started to do a lot of work for Land Rover, was doing those digital photography and producing initially CDs. That then developed into DVDs, so you could get more data on, 4.7 4.7 megabytes. That's right. All there. Mm-hmm. CDs, I think, were 650 initially, and then 700 meg megabytes of data. That sounds so, right. Which again is crazy now, isn't it? That's yes. probably about seven or eight pictures nowadays. You, and then to uh, get Windows onto loaded onto a machine, Windows operating system took about 10 discs. Yeah, there we yeah. go. That's it. <laughs> Just to show you. <laughs> I remember installing Windows 95 with floppies. There we go. Oh. Yeah. So floppy disks, oh, yeah. that was, we never did images on floppy disks. I don't think 1.44 megabytes on a three and a half. Mm-hmm. My very first digital camera was a Sony Mavica that actually put the picture on a floppy disk. It had a floppy drive in the camera. Wow. At yeah. the time, it was very yeah. cool. And now, of course, it's still stupid, cool. But actually, it is cool. <laughs> it's cool, but yeah. It's like having an A track in your vehicle. But yeah. I tell you what, the the optics of the lens on that camera were phenomenal. It didn't need all this fancy digital stuff because it had a good eye. Yep. Yes, there was no processing. It was just a, a clean, sharp lens. So that was the sort of start, if you like, of the 2000s. And then it just went on from there. And again, I think land, that era of Land Rover, from, if you like, my story is as much about the progression of Land Rover from 2000 up to present day. And you think about it, Land Rover... In 2000 was a company that made Range Rover, Discovery, and Freelander, and Defender. So basically four models. In that 23-year period, you obviously have Range Rover Sport being introduced. You have Range Rover Evoque, Range Rover Velar, Discovery Sport, Defender, New Defender, all these new models, the expansion of the range. In a way, I was very lucky because obviously they needed content and material creating to, to support all those new models. And unfortunately, they asked me to get involved and do it. If you like, that, that 23-year period was very busy doing all those sort of work. And again, I, I feel very privileged to have been able to not just do the launch photography, but also would be getting involved with the testing and development stuff. So photographing prototypes under test, a lot of the building stuff, but also all the other elements that Land Rover has Again, I, I, as a photographer, I love photographing things. I love photographing cars. I love photographing Land Rovers. But as an automotive photographer, specialising in Land Rovers, 
it's great. You get to do all sorts of other stuff. You get to do adventure photography in the middle of the jungle or the desert or in the um, Arctic tundra. But you also photograph vehicles in a studio. So you're doing a, a set of pictures in the sort of the lighting environment of a studio. You get to do G4 Challenge, Camel Trophy. G4 Challenge, that was adventure sports, mountain biking, kayaking, orienteering, all the sort of things, the travel aspect, all those things have to be captured. And as a photographer, it's great because it's not just about the vehicles, it's about the travel, it's about the people, it's about the sports. I feel very privileged to be able to stretch myself in a photographic way to be able to capture those moments, but of so many different things but all working for Land Rover. It's uh, incredible. Equestrian events. They sponsor all these equestrian events. I photographed the Queen for Land Rover. All these things, the late Queen, obviously. All these things are part of, of Land Rover's sponsorship programmes. I've done stuff with Birds of Prey. They sponsored the uh, Birds of Prey display team. It's an incredible variety of things that I photographed over the last sort of couple of decades. I think your first launch, wasn't that the D2? Of course, that was what, the last century? That was the end of the last century. Your yeah, well, first launch was Freeland one and then, and then discovery two so i did an expedition with discovery two in the late 90s which was the a trip that was around the world so i did the first section which was london to calcutta and that was back in 98 with discovery two are uh, you riding a, in the vehicle or are you driving yes or? there was two two vehicles and it was again journalists came in for different legs so we had it was a four-week trip i think it was yeah less than that it was actually we left on the first of june and we ended up in Calcutta on the 25th of June. So it was 25 days to drive from London all the way across into India. So a fairly hectic schedule. It's like the first overland in discos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Similar, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we went through all the way through Eastern Europe, through Turkey, and then into Iran. So we crossed Iran into Pakistan, the northern part of Pakistan, running alongside the Afghan border at, at times, which was quite hairy, and then into India, and then driving across along to the, the Great Trunk Road into, into Calcutta. Amazing. Again, amazing experience back in the day. So yeah, phenomenal work with a brand that does those adventurous things. I believe you're with Bill Baker on that trip too. It was indeed. Yeah, the late Bill Baker, great guy, amazing vision. And that was typical of Bill was coming up with these harebrained ideas that somehow worked and got great coverage to, to launch the car. The idea was a trip around the world. Unfortunately, the middle bit, which was in Australia and driving from New York to Panama, which was the sort of middle bit of the journey, um, I wasn't able to do because I was actually photographing Camel Trophy 1998 down in South America. It happened to run at the same time. So I couldn't do the, the middle section, but I did do the last section, which was Valencia in Spain up to the Paris Motor Show. And the car, we literally got the cars out of the container in Valencia, drove up to Paris, and we arrived the day before the show. And the global reveal of the car was the, the hero car driving onto the motor show stand, having just completed the world trip. That was a, a classic Bill Baker idea, that one. Unwashed at that point? Unwashed, it was exactly that. Yeah, 100%. It was the car wasn't washed once. Actually, that's a lie because it did get washed. I think when it left Australia, it had to be washed legally because they had these, they, you weren't allowed to come in with a dirty car on yeah. the customs. Technically, same thing with the US. Right. You're not supposed to bring in any outside soil. Exactly. I was almost turned away at the border, my Freelander once coming back from the Oviola birthday party. The guy said, I could make you wash that off. And I said, Really? <laughs> and he goes, Yeah. He said, But go ahead. Let me throw it. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that pressure washing facilities at the border. That's the question. Uh, yeah, I'd have to have gone somewhere and found it. And yeah, it was too, too much work. You're doing this, the D2 launch now. So no one knows about this until it arrives at the motor show for the reveal. Yeah, it was a bit of a funny one because I remember we, I think the car hadn't actually been announced when we actually drove them away, but they were completely undisguised. I think, again, it's that thing of, it was a different era. There wasn't right. camera phones. There wasn't social media. I think nowadays, if you drove a, a pre-production car on the public road, someone would be like, hey, that doesn't look quite, and then take a picture, and then it would be all over Facebook and social media, and then all of a sudden the secret's out. Whereas in that era, again, it was pre-digital. It was all film. There wasn't that same sort of that same sort of scrutiny when you were driving around. The speed of things, communication was a little slower. Yes. Exactly. So in addition then to the those launches, you got into other adventures, I guess, Land Rover sponsored? I feel like a USP with Land Rover, isn't it? Is that it's the passport to adventure. I'm fortunate enough that they need to get imagery of the vehicles in adventurous places. And quite often they do trips that involve the vehicles going those places. Again, the last 23 years, I've been lucky enough over my career to have been to 85 countries. Most of the time, either at the wheel or in the passenger seat of a Land Rover, which is fantastic. And again, I've seen some incredible things and been to some amazing places with some amazing people. That's the other thing. The the team at Land Rover, is a, they're a fantastic bunch of people, real can-do attitude, and you feel like nothing is going to phase them. So, yeah, in terms of where I've been, so we did, I've been to all over Africa. We've done events, expeditions and trips Tanzania, Kenya, Namibia, South Africa, and then obviously into the US, for example. The US has got some phenomenal driving. There's an absolutely amazing location. So I've done some fabulous trips in Colorado, in Moab, across Vermont. Into Vermont. I was, saying, I was going to say New England as well. There's <laughs> some beautiful tracks in, in, in those areas. And it's you need to get to Western Pennsylvania in the fall. I will do that. Yeah, definitely. It's an open invite to you, sir. That it's, invitation? Uh, yes, right, absolutely. Absolutely. Done deal. But yeah, and then apart from that, it's also South America. I've been to Argentina, Chile, both northern Argentina and southern. And then also the Middle East. Again, lots of trips in the Middle East, Dubai, Oman. Oman is a, a beautiful country. Some of the sand dunes there are, are just absolutely stunning. Really vast, vast dunes, untouched, that, that go on for miles. We did a Range Rover event there in 2008 with the L322 Range Rover. Absolutely, what a stunning car to, to take into the dune. It was, a, was when they had just, uh, I think it was the, the supercharged V8 5-litre. What a car to drive in the dunes. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> beautiful luxury with the 5-litre V8. Absolutely brilliant. That was a, a memorable trip. Yes, there was the millionth discovery, which was in 2011, and that was celebrating the the millionth discovery produced. And they literally took the the millionth car off the production line, and we drove it from Birmingham to Beijing. That was the that was the title B to B exactly A to B B to B. Unfortunately, I didn't do the whole trip. We actually shared it amongst three photographers, but I did the middle section, which was what they called the stands, which was Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. I did that section, which was again absolutely amazing opportunity and then i actually went back and did the same trip with the range rover hybrid back in in 2013 so that was the first electric range rover so it was it was a, a hybrid and they used three of the engineering prototypes the idea being that they wanted to do the final sign off which was again a drive from birmingham and this time we went down to mumbai that was over 54 days driving all the way through Eastern Europe. 
and then went into Eastern Europe and then across the stands again and then into China. And we ran all the way down the, the western side of China, which is an area called the Xinjiang Highway. And I think at the time we were the first Westerners to actually have driven the whole north to south route of the Xinjiang Highway. We had special licenses and permits to do that with these vehicles. And then into Nepal and across through Nepal into India and then down into Mumbai. So again, a phenomenal trip. Really, really fantastic. Really yeah, very memorable. The drive, I think driving Nepal would be pretty cool. Just being in Nepal period would be very cool yeah, just to see that. But, yeah. And that was, yeah, 10 years ago now. Amazing where that, right. where that time went. But, and, and didn't yeah, you make a large trip uh, from Norway to, I think, Jordan in the Middle East? And Oh, yes. That yes. Was, yes, that was in 2002. That was that was an event that was basically supporting a, an, an off-road rally that was, it was an, actually an all-female team competing in a rally in support of cancer research. And I was the photographer that, that covered that. And yeah, basically ran all the way from Norway down to Jordan, which was, in fact, funnily enough, it was in 2002. And it was actually the month before my wedding. So actually, oh. we left at the beginning of June. And I think we got back. I think the event was it was a three-week event. I got back from that, that event on the 21st. And then we got married the week later on the 28th. I let my wife to do all the, the sorting out and then just popped up. Or conveniently, end. you were out of the country. It, exactly. It, yes. Exactly. But it was a... It was an amazing trip and we went, um, part of that route was actually through into Syria and involved a, a drive into Damascus before we went into Jordan. Which so, you, you could not do now. That was... Uh, no, it's yeah. very sad really, yeah. isn't it? That here we are 21 years later and it would be absolutely impossible yeah. to do. It's, yeah, Vehicles uh, were used on that trip. That was actually the last generation of Discovery 2s. Okay. So that was the facelifted Discovery 2s. I remember with the sort of the twin lights? Yeah. That was actually done as a as part of the launch for that to help to promote that vehicle as a, an adventure. What about the launches of the or trips with the, the Disco 3, 4, 5? Yeah. So Disco 3, we did a trip to Argentina in that. Mm-hmm. That would have been in about 2012, I think, maybe. No, maybe 2000. No, sorry. It was actually 2008, 2009. So yeah, we did a big trip to in Argentina, northern Argentina, up through the sort of national parks there into Salta. Yeah, beautiful. Again, very high altitude. So we went to the Akai Pass, which I think is around about 14,000 feet, I think, off the top of my head. It's That's, a pretty, pretty yeah. high altitude. And mm-hmm. I do remember, actually, we had, when we were doing some photography there, we were actually ahead of the convoy. So we actually had to wait at that high altitude for the rest of the convoy to catch up with us. And I think we spent about an hour and a half waiting there at high altitude. And I must admit, the the lack of oxygen does strange things to your brain. I remember we just we were there basically just giggling like schoolboys. Just <laughs> the, the lack yeah, of I, I think it's at that altitude, you just don't want to be naturally aspirated, either you or the vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were all turbocharged, which is very yes, good. Yes, they hopefully you had some extra oxygen for the for that height. They did actually have it. They had a, a specially converted Discovery ambulance, actually, which had which had onboard oxygen. So you could actually, if you did have a bit of a moment where you felt a bit short, you could have a quick sniff and, and get, get back to your normal self again. So tell us more about this Disco ambulance. What model was this? Is this like a, this a Disco 3? Yeah, Disco 3 that was converted. I think they took... 
Yeah, so it was basically like a commercial. So they mm-hmm. took the rear seats out and they had a stretcher in the back. It wasn't long wheelbase stretched or anything. It was just enough space to put the stretcher in. They had some of the sort of special equipment, probably a defibrillator and a fridge uh, for anti-venom or something like that as well. That's, for, uh, was this a... Uh, la- picking pictures out. Did, uh, oh, that'd be cool. Did Land Rover make this? Was this a Land Rover? Uh, yeah, it was Land So it was actually a trip that was done in conjunction with Land Rover Germany. So I think it was done by the Germans. The Germans actually produced that that particular ambulance. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. Just, I, I always I always like when they do those like little specialized things. And it's nice to hear because they did in the, in the old days. It's nice to hear when they do it kind of in modern times and take a Disco Three and turn it into uh, an ambulance. That's cool. Exactly. Now there's you know, there's still a I get to work with some of the special vehicles guys quite a lot, and there's always some interesting things going on in there. Mm-hmm. Can't always talk about them, unfortunately. Uh, of course. We knew it. <laughs> and these things are based on the commercial versions, which we just don't see over here. That's right. right. That was a commercial based. So again, when you have a completely flat back floor, and obviously no windows. No windows, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I don't know. Is it probably you still have the chicken tax? Is it over in in the US? We you do. Can't bring oh yeah, we do. Commercial vehicles. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, pickups, commercial vehicles. Yeah. That's yeah. That's why Honda and Toyota all build their pickups here in the US because the twenty five percent tax. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So you're never going to see a Discovery mm-hmm. commercial in the US. And, and that's why Subaru bolted those flimsy plastic seats in the back of their pickup truck. Yes. So they can call why. it a car. <laughs> yeah, and that's why Ford ships in the back of- Yeah, you remember the Subaru Brat? Yeah, yeah. That was a chicken tax evader. Wow, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, they put those little seats in the back so they could license it as a car and avoid the tax. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they weren't like legal seats in most states. <laughs> most states so like, had to be removed little, shortly like the, after. Like the old-fashioned uh, dicky seats at the back. Yes. In the open air. They're like uh, amusement ride seats. <laughs> And, and since then, some states, I know Pennsylvania has, have passed laws that you're not allowed to sit in the back of a pickup while right. it's in motion. Like, I think it's partly because of that right. reason, because we're like, oh, you can put seats in the back and just sit there. No, no, you really shouldn't. <laughs> Ratchet yeah. strap a, a sofa in the back. Sure. Yeah, that's like West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't, shouldn't go after our West Virginia friends. And Ford's shipped for, what was it, the Ford Transit? They ship seats back and forth between... The UK and the US. Oh, mm-hmm. oh! So they would bring it in Make as a van. Oh. Yeah, yeah, they did that, and then ship the seats back, put them in another set of vehicles, and and yeah. we think all those little quick release clips that you can move the seats around were done for customer convenience. <laughs> <laughs> right. Those G4 Challenge events, the 2003 and 2006. What was great about those events was it was the whole range. Every model was part of it. So you had Freelander. A Defender, Range Rover, and then Discovery the first year. And then obviously in 2006, the Range Rover Sport had just been launched. If you think, amazing to think that now, isn't it really? 2005, the Range Rover Sport was launched. So it was the first year which had Range Rover Sport and what was then Discovery 3 as the hero vehicles for both the teams. And then obviously Range Rover and Defender and Freelander were used as support vehicles. Yeah, so that was 2006. And then, of course, there was going to be a, a G4 challenge in 2009, which unfortunately got cancelled because the global financial crisis in 2008, it was literally a case of everything was go. And in fact, I did a recce in Mongolia with G4 challenge vehicles in, in 2008, in May 2008, because the event was due to take place in, in, in Mongolia. But yeah, literally end of December in 2008, 
event was cancelled. So that was that. Led to Ford selling Land Rover and Jaguar. Because that was, they owned them in 08. Yeah, I think, I don't think that was related. I think it was literally more a case of, you know, it was seen as being not not appropriate that if the world starts to go into sort of a bit of a financial situation, financial crisis, to actually be seen spending right. a lot of money on a on an event with people going off and doing adventurous stuff was probably not seen as being right. a, a good PR move. So. It, my, my point was, it also, the financial crisis also led to Ford selling off Land Rover. Oh, is that right? Okay, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah Land Rover. That, that was the way Ford was able to survive the downturn without taking government money. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because so here they, in the U.S., both General Motors and Chrysler took end up taking government loans and technically general motors went out of business they went bankrupt and then as part of the special things that happened the name came back and they're like their debts were some debts went away some didn't but then now but general motors still says we've existed since for over this time like technically you actually went out of business well gm has but gm doesn't stand for general motors anymore it's now government motors yeah, it's, it's, the, the government owns a small a stake in the not, company, not, not as big as not, it was originally. Not anymore. No, they paid all that. Ford paid all that. Paid all their. They did get a loan. They paid all that back. General Motors has since paid off all theirs too. But that, yeah, that led to Ford selling Jag and yes, Land Rover of off. So, and of course, that yeah. was another period that that sort of Tata ownership. You've got Range Rover Evoque, and of course, that started with the LRX concept car. Again, I remember doing a quite a cool photo shoot with the LRX concept car in New York, in Manhattan, back in, would have been early 2009, I think it was. Yeah, <laughs> and that was, that was uh, again, a, a, an amazing shoot to do because it was literally the brief was, right, go and shoot the car in, in Manhattan. Basically did a little bit of research, found some cool locations, and that model LRX, if you remember the concept car was in what it was literally a model. It was it was actually it was actually a Freelander 2 platform that had been a hand-built metal frame with then a mixture of glass fiber and carbon fiber body panels. The glass was all plexiglass. I mean, it was pretty much a plastic airfix kit, really, right. that you could drive, but it had no suspension. The seats were fixed. It was it was it was literally a model. Oh, so it looked like a fancy new thing, but drove like a series one. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No suspension, anything like that. Hard, hard seats. So yeah, but that, that particular shoot was cool because we, we basically ended up taking this thing all over Manhattan. We had a trailer to put it in because obviously clearly you couldn't just drive around the streets. But the the guy that was from design that was looking after the model, he was like, yeah, I'm up for driving this thing if you want to do some action shots. <laughs> and hosts from Land Rover North America they were like, we had this manufacturer plate. And they were like, you know, I think as far as the law goes, if you've got a manufacturer plate, you can drive anything because it's a prototype. So we actually ended up driving the car down Broadway where I was basically strapped in the back of a LR3, photographing the car in movement when you had these yellow taxis sort of coming back either side and you got this priceless. I dread to think how much this thing cost to build. It was months in the build, the prototype, the only one in the world. And this guy's basically, yeah, I'll, I'm happy to drive it down Broadway with all this stuff going on. And we did, we did uh, emerge unscathed. But at one moment, I was like, this does seem a little bit risky. Yeah. But well, anyway, it sounds like a Top Gear moment. <laughs> exactly. you know, that's what good. Top Gear would do. Someone hanging out of a truck and taking pictures where they shouldn't. Yeah, that's it. It's good. Yeah, because because driving in Manhattan, you know, it may start out as a nice car, but it's your beater by the end of the day. Yeah. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, we had a fun time. I do remember it being it was it was in January and it was absolutely freezing cold. I do remember it being really cold. Yeah. Just that bitter wind coming up through the the glass canyons, the streets. That is the thing about Manhattan is it's the extremes. If you're there in winter, it's just all the cold wind off the Atlantic. And if you're there in the summer, you're just baking in stifling heat. 2013 was Land Rover's 65th anniversary. And you then wrote another book. You were the author of another book on the 65th anniversary. Yes. That's, here we go. Here's what I prepared earlier. Yes, that's right. Yes, we have <laughs> more visual aids. This is it. So this is this is an old book now. This is this is ten years old. So obviously we just had the the seventy fifth this year. But yeah, it was a that was a fun project to do. It was a, if you like, it was a bit of a, a look back, my greatest hits, if you like, over the previous the previous few years. And yeah, it was a nice project to do. And in fact, I kicked myself this year and thought, actually, I should have done a book this year. So that's my sort of promise if I can get a publisher is to do a an 80th book I think in in five years time that's my target I think I will that's what I'm gonna do did you get some photos at the uh, Diamond Jubilee here in North America absolutely yeah, absolutely I, yeah, I got loads of pictures because I know you were a special guest and I didn't know if you actually got to go out because you can't be as a photographer you can't go to these things and not take any pictures must admit we I did have a lot of time and again as you may have noticed, I like talking. Really? <laughs> I did spend a lot of time talking to people, which was great. That's the, the one thing that you know I really enjoy with with hanging out with fellow enthusiasts is just, just talking about Land Rover's adventure, travel, photography. It's all, all my passion, so you just keep me going. But yeah, I think for me it was it was a really good event. And the fact I was I loved the fact there was such a variety of different vehicles there. And that was the fun thing for me photographing it. He had everything from absolutely beautifully turned out modified new defenders v8s we had some four cylinders there six cylinders various different ones some of the ones maybe a right hand drive 110 that was in a nice uh blue Indeed, that was a great one huh? yeah huh? absolutely Mister? there, there were some great beers in the in the boot of that one i seem to remember as well but, yes right yeah. right <laughs> and uh, yeah, Bob Steele's new Defender as well, of course, with that fantastic 8274 winch on the front. What a great bit of kit that is. And then, of course, all the 80s. That was the other thing. The All the, mm -hmm. the big, was it probably the largest concentration of 80s in, in North America in one place? It must be for a, certainly for a long time. Oh, probably since, yeah, probably for forever. Definitely and then, since they left the factory. And everything in between. That was the, except the Freelander. So I think that's the challenge, isn't it? For the 80th is yes. I want to see more Freelanders. I want to see more Freelanders. At, I think we want to see the, one. One. We need to see both Freelanders still in existence. <laughs> there well, were more free, forward controllers there than there were Freelanders. <laughs> there, were literally no, there were literally no Freelanders, were there? Absolutely yeah, zero. One did, one did register. It did not show. It's very interesting to me that the one... Freelander that all of us have seen recently is a G4 challenge Freelander. And it has been to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix at least a couple of years. Now. Two years in a row. There is a local a person local here to Pittsburgh that has a functioning it is and he drives it G4 livery Freelander. Now, did he come two years in a row or did yes. he get stuck on site after the first year? Nope. He couldn't be removed he, for the second. He was here two years in a row. Here's two years in a row. They would have mowed around it. It would have been. Steve Barris is going to get his ready, I think, isn't he, as well? That's the. Uh, that, he claims he's going to get his ready for the 80th. Yes. It may take that long time to find all the parts necessary. And they're still yes. trying to get the water out of the transmission. I know that was a that was pretty that was pretty brutal, wasn't it? Were so were you part of the DC 100 prototype launching? So I was, yeah. So I got involved with DC 100, basically doing some photography 
So there was, do you remember there was a sort of a drive on the beach in LA? Wasn't there one in uh, the snow too? It wasn't in the snow as well. Okay, yeah. So yeah. there was so the two, it was two shows. There was the LA Auto Show and the Geneva Motor Show. So where both these vehicles were shown and Land Rover being Land Rover, and I, I absolutely love this about them. They decided that the show cars that were going to be on the stand. So absolutely, you imagine the motor show cars, they're these works of art that are treated like gods that get polished within an inch of their life. So two days before the show, Land Rover takes the concept cars, the only one in existence, and lets journalists drive it on the beach at, at Malibu. It was fantastic. This is the car that's basically on the show stand. It's, it's a working concept. It was basically hooned around on the sand by various different media. And I remember the guys that had to put the car on the stand, they said that there was literally sand still coming out of this vehicle on the show stand on a daily basis. If the thing shook a little bit, the little bit of sand would appear and they had to get some chap with a brush to sweep it up. Sand gets (laughs) everywhere. everywhere. I would have left it there. Let it pile up like an hourglass. (laughs) Would have been, that's right. Would have been a a cheap way to get a little sand dune on there, wouldn't it? Would have been good. Yeah. What was the frame for that? Was that a, again, was that a... Maybe or something was it again? Obviously, that was a design concept, so it wasn't actually an actual model. Okay, it it drove, right? I think it was a Range Rover Sport that they had been hacked around. So yeah, it was a obviously a one-off, but obviously very much just used as a donor powertrain. Right, it would have been a bespoke platform, but but and then never to be seen again. Yeah, mm. never, at the end of the day, if the public doesn't like it, then that's it. And well, the prototype, the prototype did its job. It was out there to see and the trial it balloon. certainly, I think, drove a lot of interest in the new product because it certainly started a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think. And if you look at what the vehicle became in the shape of the, the new Defender, I think it was definitely the right direction. It was an evolution. And in fact, people often say the step from the what was the old Defender, the classic Defender, to the new Defender, it's a big leap, isn't it? 2016 to 2019. But obviously that transition, there wasn't that transition, was there? There wasn't that sort of organic move from more from old fashioned, if you like. To, it was to three years. It was 30 years in three years. Exactly. Pretty pretty so, much what happened. It was 30. Yeah, they yeah. compressed that 30. What you would have, if you had done proper development over the time, for whatever reasons they didn't, no need to talk about it now. Well, I, love the, well, I love the fact that actually it worked. It's, mm-hmm. I think in the US, it's an incredibly popular vehicle. We just, I've just been to the Destination Defender mm-hmm. in the US and it's great. It's great to see the modifications that are being done. And I think the US market in particular is quite, you are very much a, a market that, that, that buys the new Defender and actually uses it. You guys take them off-road. You do modify them. You put winches on them. And it's great to see it because that's at the end of the day, that's what a, a Defender should be. It should be there adapted for the way you want to use it. And I think it's great to see that. Yeah, and if you're going to call it a Defender and if you're going to treat it like like a, a proper Defender, you need to kit it out just like you would have a legacy Defender. Totally. And I think it's great that you've got all the companies that are producing all this kit mm-hmm. that can make it even more capable than it is as a standard vehicle. I was lucky enough to do, I don't know if you remember the, when as part of the the promotion to, to introduce the fact that Defender was coming back. Do you remember there was the camouflage prototype that, mm-hmm. that we did a whole load of photography at different locations. In fact, we went back to Manhattan again. And then we also did. Wasn't one of those where they had the rear end just like, a third of it out of out of a tractor trailer and then maybe they did yes. little, just a little front yeah, i remember exactly. those yeah did yeah, you take those are my pictures oh yeah, excellent excellent and, and then we came across and we did a load of stuff in the mud 
which was actually at Monticello. There's a racetrack just north of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And there's a, they've also got a great off-road course there through the woods, and lots of mud and a bit sort of Eastner-esque. So we did some photography there with Fred Monzies, the Camel Trophy, ex-Camel Trophy competitor for the mm -hmm. US, and mm -hmm. also Land Rover experience in the US. So Fred drove the, the new Defender for us to that photo shoot. And then Sean Gorman, who's the Land Rover experience chap as well, he's he came and did some stuff with us in Colorado in the snow. And we also took it to, to Moab, did some rock crawling with it. And then we ended up in, we did some stuff in Vegas as well on the Strip. I remember the uh, Moab ones when that came, when the, because the pictures got around for that. I think some Land Rover folks saw it on the trail and they were, they had yes. gotten pictures underneath and saw the suspension and we were all speculating. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was on that one. Yeah. Okay. Right. We, were, we were there doing some development and test photography when right. it was, I think it was a, a bunch of guys from Motor Trend, I think, when they were doing, they just happened to be doing a test at the same time. And they were quite crafty, yeah. So the guy was basically taking the camera, doing some shots underneath, showing all the suspension setup and everything else. A little bit cheeky. Yeah, absolutely. And were you part of that Namibia launch? Wasn't that part of the, the product launch? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the things that was vital for the launch of New Defender was, again, bringing that adventure aspect for the, for the model. It's not a Defender unless it, it's been in Africa. There's so much history. There's so much iconic imagery that has taken place over the previous 70 years. It had to go to Africa. So the first adventure, if you like, was in Namibia. And that was in February and March 2019, just prior to lockdown. And yeah, it was amazing. I remember it was... So I'd, I'd worked with the car doing the test and development stuff throughout late 2019 through 20, sorry, late 2018 through into 2019, and had been to many different places to photograph the car in full camouflage. And then Namibia was the first time that I actually got to drive the car and actually be in the car as a proper production model. It was fantastic. It was one of those things that it, it felt like a Defender. It was that thing where I'd done so many trips at the old Defender. When you got in and I put my bag in the back and it was all that fabulous interior with the open dashboard, you felt, I've come home. This is familiar territory. And it was great. It was great seeing the car out in Africa. We did a whole variety of different locations up in, in Namibia. So we were up in a place called Poyu, which is up in the north. And then part of that was a, a very famous track called Van Zyl's Pass. And that's a very sort of technical, rocky mountain pass that, that we, went, we went down. But actually, one of the things when we did a part of the photography at the beginning was doing a, a set of stock pictures. So this is before the journalist, the media arrived. So we produce a, a set of images to basically capture the best moments and the best locations at the best sun, sunset times, sunlight times. Vanzil's Pass, there was a great sunset opportunity there. But to do that, we then had to drive about an hour back to camp. And so we did the sunset shot, and then we had to drive in the dark up this pretty serious off-road track. And it was me driving one car and then another driver, Dougie Dale, driving the other. It was pretty gnarly. It was technical off-roading yep. in the dark, in new vehicles. And my God, it was one of those things that I really felt this is a proper Land Rover. It really felt just cope with the, the terrain fantastically well. And I was like, that's it. I'm sold. Might that have been the first time a new Defender had done something as technical as a production vehicle? Yeah, as a production vehicle, that's the thing. Again, you I mean, I've been very privileged to be able to capture some of the test and development stuff. And and with Defender, we did a lot of test and development work because you know that was one of the key um, messages that 
it had to show that this was a vehicle that you know, had already been to the coldest, the hottest, the you know the most technical. All the vehicles went through a very large validation program in the Sanjeans at Dubai. It went to Moab, where, as you said, we got we got papped by the right. uh, the guys motor trend. It goes down to minus forty degrees centigrade in sorry minus thirty five degrees centigrade in in Arjuplog in in Sweden, in the Arctic Circle. Where else did it go? It's been it went and tested in Australia. The, the vehicle had to go to all these places in order to basically prove that it's it's already been there and done it. So that's part of the test program. Was it Namibia where two of uh, new defenders were caught taking a tractor trailer out of the sand? They had they towed yeah, it so- out. Were you there for that? I was, but unfortunately, so there was actually two groups on the ground at the same time, and I was on one and my colleague Damien Blakemore was on the other. And unfortunately, the one with the tractor trailers was on Damien's convoy, so I didn't actually film or photograph that. That was Damien. But as you say, it was a, a real sort of iconic moment because yeah. and it was genuine it wasn't set up it was this guy had basically was driving a, a tractor trailer and there had been some flooding and the river had got very or the, the road had got very washed out and he had got stuck and it was one of those things he'd been there for two or three days and oh. this chap dougie dale who i talked about earlier Dougie was like, we need to get this guy out. He needs to go on his journey. And the overriding thing was like, yeah, let's do this. And that's it. They hooked up the defenders and pulled that that truck out of the yeah. out of the sand. It was impressive stuff. It was a genuine moment, as you said. That was, it was uh, absolutely. Was it was totally yeah. totally spontaneous. One of those moments that, like in you know a lot of these sort of iconic photographs or video sections from Land Rover's history, that's it's a genuine thing. It really happened. Going along with the the new defender, what's coming up and what's new? for Nick Dimbleby. What's coming up in the future? Anything you can talk about? I'm sure there's stuff you can't tell us about, like the baby defender, right? (laughs) (laughs) I've signed a lot of, I've signed a lot of NDAs. My lips are sealed in those sort of matters, I'm afraid. I'd love to tell you, but unfortunately I'd probably be hung, drawn and quartered if I did. And I certainly probably, I definitely wouldn't work again. As I enjoy my career, I'd like to keep my job. I will keep myself stum. But I guess in terms of stuff I can talk about, I've got, so just actually in the process now of making plans for early next year, which is the Range Rover Sport SV watch event, which will be taking place next year, early next year. And that's and that's going to be interesting because that, again, what I love about Land Rover is the variety, the breadth of the products that you can buy from Land Rover. So, for example, so we've talked about a lot of the adventure side of things or the, the amazing things we've done on the off-road side. The Range Rover Sport SV is going to be, and it, and it is a phenomenal car on-road. It is it's almost, for me, it almost feels like it's changing the laws of physics. It's cornering abilities and, and high speed ability is absolutely phenomenal. It goes fast. But it goes fast, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, which is people like that sort of thing. And but it goes other, against the spirit of everything Land Rover, though. It does, it does go fast. <laughs> yes and no, because you see, what I like about it is that they also, this event is will have a, a circuit element. So there'll be a, an on-track element. But there'll also be an off-road element. So it's not just about going fast and high-performance handling. That car is also phenomenal off-road, as every Range Rover, Land Rover, Defender, Discovery needs to be. It, without having that off-road capability, you can't put that that green oval on the front. It'll be very interesting to see how that performs. And in fact, came back to what we talked about earlier with the test and development stuff, I was involved with the test and development work with that particular vehicle, including some stuff in um, Dubai. And you know, that car is absolutely phenomenal in the dunes it's just it just you know, absolutely monsters them it's great that that land rover 
wants to showcase that. And I think they also produce vehicles that have that uh, breadth of capability that harks back to the first vehicles. The first vehicles were great off-road maybe not quite so good on road. It's maybe better now that the vehicles, let's face it, roads are much better nowadays than they were back in the in the 1950s. It's appropriate that, that Land Rover obviously moves with the times and it's great to be involved with that. But I, I love the fact that they still have that, that to be absolutely class leading and beyond class leading off road is still very important. You know, what Land Rover still needs to do, because they've done it with all these other models, you need to do a London to India or maybe Singapore and the new Defender. seems like they yes, like doing that. Just a little hint. I think, I guess the thing is that I think COVID put everything in a bit of a pause. And as you probably right. know, the world's been in a bit of chaos ever since. And I think things are now starting to get more stable again. For example, in my work, I was traveling a lot pre-COVID. Obviously COVID happened. I got to write my camel book. Fantastic. But obviously as we all started to, the world started to open up again and we were able to travel again, it's been a slow process and it's only the last sort of, probably the last sort of six months really that I feel that, you know, the travel aspect is starting to become on the agenda again. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to think that there will be some more adventurous trips coming on. As you may have seen, Land Rover did a Defender event in Dubai with the Defender 130. That was good. And it was Dubai and actually out in the dunes. We went out and far, not just in the, the areas that are the typical areas, but we went further afield into the dunes, into more remote areas. I think I think it's definitely time that there's some more. We get out there and start exploring the world again, not just at Land Rover, but all of us. I think it's, it's time to get back and start enjoying a bit of travel and being with people and meeting people again. That's, I think, really important. Coming to the, like, coming to the Narcs Jubilee. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. that's it. That was, it was great was to great see event. and meet you there, by the way. So thank you for doing that and coming. It was, okay. it was a great event. It was, I still think about it and it was, it's, it went so well. It was great. And that's you know, one of the things that I love about the Land Rover community is, is really a very warm bunch of people. Everyone's got a common shared interest that, you know, and it's just nice hanging out, talking Rovers and what better way to spend a weekend. Where can folks find all your work and keep track well, and follow? Follow you as you uh, do future activities. Yeah, so I guess in terms of books on sale, there's only the Camel Trophy Definitive History book actually in print at the moment. But I think if you look on eBay, there's probably a few of my old books there for sale, which may be of interest. Yeah, the old 65th anniversary, the 60th. I did a a book on off-road driving techniques back in 1997, years ago, which uh, again was an interesting book because that was pre-traction control. It was was all... Air suspension. Yeah, all that was all yet to come. So yeah, so it's not really very relevant for today, but it was was a fun thing to do. You need to update that. It's time. I need to update that. Although I think now off-road driving techniques is probably, it it was a good put to write then but now it's got so so technical all the different technology it's probably a bit more difficult to do but yeah and then obviously online i have my website which is nickdimbleby.com so that's that's got a, a variety of different i guess that's a showcase website with lots of stuff obviously not just land rover work some of my some of my uh, automotive stuff as well and and uh, some of the corporate stuff so i don't just photograph land rovers i do other bits and pieces and then so there's a lot of different things there and then my instagram i have um, i'm not on facebook but i do have a instagram which again is easy enough nick dimbleby at nick dimbleby is my my instagram handle and i try and be fairly good on updating stuff and i do a, a real mix of old stuff and new stuff but interesting enough it's it's funny because i obviously could post quite a lot of other stuff that i do 
But I tend to find that most people that follow me love Land Rovers, which I guess is no surprise. And it's funny because if I post something that's not a Land Rover, doesn't get half as many comments oh. or likes as the Land Rover stuff. Engagement goes down. Exactly. But yeah. it's good. I like, that's what I that's what I do. I am at the end of the day, I'm known for my Land Rover stuff. So it does make sense. We'll have links in the show notes to your Instagram, to your website, and to Porter Press for the books. Nick, thanks very much. Appreciate you took a lot of time when we recorded this out of your day. And we appreciate it. Thank your wife for allowing you to also spend a couple hours talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the onto the podcast. My pleasure. I think with the time difference, she's probably asleep in bed now. So you have time for another whiskey then? Exactly. That's it. That's it. I'll probably end up falling asleep in my office and then I'll be in real trouble. Thanks very much for having a really great conversation. As I say, what's more fun than just talking about Land Rovers and obviously in my case, photography, it's, it's a great way to spend a couple of hours. We hope you enjoy show number 130. Thanks to Nick Dimbleby for talking to us a second time about the 21st century and his activities. And we look forward to seeing Nick Dimbleby at a future Land Rover event. And thanks to the One True Packs for his continued production support. We appreciate that, Pax, for you do helping us to sound good, sound well, sound good, sound well. Sound listenable. Sound listenable. Okay, there we go. Although he did not identify that it was a failed wire all those years ago, Harold. No, but he did very quickly say, I really could help you guys. That's true. That's true. It's a very polite way of saying, you guys (laughs) suck. That's true. Good point. He he did come to us and say, hey, I can help. You know, I don't do this for a living, but even I could help you. Now, can we have some of that neat music like the head in that? Land Rover video, Shades of Quartermass or Doctor Who? Yeah, that video. Didn't it sound like Doctor Who to you? Like, as soon as it starts? Oh, yes. The BBC Radiophonics Workshop That's at right. its best. That's right. Well, thanks to you guys also. Dixon, Morgan, Harold coming on, as always. Do appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Ten bucks is ten bucks. We post a new podcast at the end of every month. Our webpage, com has all our shows to listen to. And show notes with the links to stories that we talked about in today's podcasting, including the extraordinary terrestrial. Go check that out. Seriously, go do it right now. Well, wait until the podcast is almost over, and then you can go check it out after. You can directly support the podcast at patreon.com slash center steer. You can buy a t-shirt, sticker, or even a tee. Visit our website for all those details. And if you have an idea for guests, send us the details and the contact info if you have it. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and what you're up to in your Land Rover. On behalf of the entire North American crew here at the Center Steer Podcast, I'd like to thank you for listening today. We know you have a choice when it comes to your podcast content, and we do appreciate your choosing us. Please take a moment to look around you for any personal items you may be leaving behind, especially in the overhead bins. Remember, some items may have shifted during the show. Please watch your step as you negotiate your way past the missing door plug and you may now resume your important things. The Defender suddenly is no longer a glorified tractor.